All right, gang, as the moms and dads bring their kids back to the back, and as you guys are able, grab a Bible. There are those that are in the doorway as you come in. We're in Acts chapter 8. You're going to want to have a Bible open and in your lap so we can see it together. Last week, thank you for your prayers for me and for my family as I was out of town in Colorado, and Barry Knoll, who's the associate pastor at Christ Pres, preached, and Barry said a line that I won't forget when I listened to his sermon this week. The line was this. He said that your life is one continual need for repentance. In other words, repentance isn't something that you do just to get into the gospel, just to enter into a relationship with Jesus. It's the way you progress. The way up is actually down. I really appreciated that about Barry's sermon last week. And I needed it because as I was walking along this trail in Colorado with my father-in-law, right? Anytime you go on a trip with your father-in-law and your brothers-in-law, you're always a little worried that you're going to come back a man short. So I was out on this trek in the Lost Creek Wilderness for 28 miles over three days, and, um, and I could feel your prayers. So thanks. And one of the things you know as you backpack or as you, as you hike is that as you set up a camp, the very first thing you do when you set up camp, but even before you put your tents up, is what? You get the bear bags, and you make sure the food is up top. And then after you get the bear bags settled, you can kind of relax just a little bit, and then you start a fire. And we had this weather pattern. It was a little, it was a little strange. We had snow, we had hail, and we had rain, all three in those three days. And so we're trying to get this fire going. We're getting the kindling. We're finding any piece of dry kindling we can. And you know that as you start a fire in the woods and you start it, there's no gas, but you get just a little bit of that kindling lint. And then what do you do? You blow on it. And you blow on it. And so we got this wet kindling lint and we blew on it. And we got lightheaded after about 10 minutes of doing that. And we were dizzy, but we had to keep blowing it because we saw this little ember. And all of a sudden, as we blew, even amidst the rain, the fire took. And that's what you see in Acts chapter 8. Because Acts 1 to 7 is where you have these little embers. The church is contained in Jerusalem. And then with the death of Stephen, persecution, the wind, if you will, comes to the church and takes this little ember, this little coal, this little bitty fire that's just a little bitty spark. And it blows it out, beginning in chapter 8, from Judea through Samaria. And you see that with the death of Stephen, that the church is scattered through persecution. And that those who scatter the church, interestingly enough, as we're going to see, are not who you might expect. So give your attention to God's word. And I'm going to read from us from Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. And I'm going to read all the way down through verse 40. Listen, in this series, we're reading large swaths of Scripture because Luke wants us to read large swaths of Scripture. There is a Greek word, un. Now that he sets forth in chapters 8 and 9, now this, now that. He wants you to keep reading larger sections in order to see the point he's trying to make for Theophilus. Acts is about acts of Jesus, not the acts of the apostles. Let's see what Jesus is continuing to do. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So that there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, As he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued continued with Philip after seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. Verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken of the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone explains it to me, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep who was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. 
and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until they came to Caesarea. Friends, let's pray together. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it intends to change our hearts. Even reading this long passage, where we're tempted to be distracted by it, I pray that you will settle us on the main point of this chapter, namely that it's amazing who you use to spread your good news. So, Father, would you challenge us, we pray. Would you indeed change us before we leave? Father, we pray that you will uh, continue to give uh, wisdom to families as they negotiate their summer travel schedules and as they think about camps and they figure out when lessons are going to be and as they negotiate um, what can sometimes be a very frenetic time of the year. Give them peace, I pray. Protect them. Help them in the midst of their crazy, busy schedule to find rest in you. Help us not to be afraid to practice the Sabbath around here. To give one day in seven to relax. To feed upon your word and to find that it nourishes our soul. Lord, for our men, I pray especially this summer as the kids are home that you'll help them to support their wives. Lord, help us as men to be there for our wives, not to just abandon them to our normal routines, but to help care for the kiddos in ways that are helpful. Be with those men who are single dads. Protect them. Give them respite when they need it. For those moms who are doing it on their own, would you protect them, I pray. Thank you that it takes a village to raise our families. And you've given us such a village in our community at Trinity. So change our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things you learn pretty quickly when you come to Oklahoma is that you learn that we were established because of of the five tribes, right? And one of those tribes, the Cherokees, had this old legend about how they first discovered fire. Have you ever heard this story? The Cherokees used to believe that fire was contained with the thunders. The thunders had the fire and the animals didn't. And the thunders would remind you of their power by showing you the fire in the sky on occasion, except until one day the thunders let the fire come to earth. And lightning struck a sycamore tree in the middle of an island across the water from the animals. And so the animals convened together and said, how are we going to try to get that fire? Because we're cold and we want to be warm. And so they sent the white raven. And the white raven flew all the way over the sea and he got to that place and the embers were so great, the fire charred him and turned the raven forever black. And so then after that, they sent the the, uh, the hooting owl over the oceans. And the hooting owl came to the island and he came down to the flames to get the fire. And the fire was so great that it seared his eyes red. Then after that, he sent the hooting owl. And the hooting owl, have you heard this story before? The hooting owl went over and he went to the great island to get the fire. And the hooting owl came upon the ash of the fire, which blew smoke in its face. And he got white rings around his eyes. And so finally, they sent the snake slithers across the island, gets there, beautiful snake, many colored, and he gets to the fire, and he too is charred black like the raven. Finally, they're all out of options until the water spider. The little water spider comes and says, I'll go. I'll walk across the water, and he does, and he spins a web, 
and he has a little bow in his back. And he takes the coal and he puts it in the web on the bow of his back. And he walks back across the water. And that's how the Cherokees get their fire from the little water spider who has a bow in his back. If you see those spiders, they actually have a concave shape to the back of their bodies. That's the place where the coal reshaped them as he brought fire to the animals. Listen, the point of the tale is this. In Acts chapter 8, as the gospel goes wide to the world, we think it's going to be the raven or the owl or the snake or the animals that we all really like, the guys that have some clout in the kingdom. But who is it that actually brings fire back to the Cherokees? Who is it that actually gets the gospel out of Jerusalem? What does your text say? It says that after the persecution of Stephen, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem and everybody else spread out. And what you learn in Acts chapter 8 about the gospel is how God spreads it. Who does he use? Where does he spread it? And to whom does he give it? Who does he use? Where does he spread it? And to whom does he give it? Let's look at those questions together. Who does he use to spread the gospel? Point number one. God does not use the apostles in Acts chapter 8, to spread the gospel. He uses the laity. He uses the people of the church to spread the gospel. Notice if you lower your eyes to the text, you'll see in verses 1 to 3 of Acts chapter 8 that Paul ravages the church, that he drags men and women into prison, and this scatters the laity of the church. When I say laity, I just mean the people, not the ministers, not the apostles, He scatters the people. And God uses, if you will, the water spiders of the world, people who we wouldn't expect, people like Stephen, people like Philip, not John, not Peter, not Andrew. David Wells has this great line in a book that he wrote not long ago where he says that it's the professionalization of the clergy that has destroyed the evangelical church. What I mean by that is that when you think about sharing the gospel with other people and you say no 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 that's mike phelps job he can do the confession of sin really well he's an elder let him do it or will parker he's the guy or nathan keller blake he's a he gets paid to spread the gospel let him do it whenever you begin to see that the gospel you pretend that the gospel is like the job of the professionals you've missed the joy of the gospel in fact the professionalization of the clergy and of the ministry has actually killed in some ways david wells says the evangelical church because it cuts out from under us the joy of being able to be his hands and feet in owasso are you with me in acts chapter 8 he uses philip who's a deacon listed with stephen and it says that philip He is among those who are scattered, and he went about preaching the word just until this point in Acts. The word evangelism is used one time in chapter 5, verse 42. And here, in verse 4, it said he went about preaching the word. It's a little misleading in the ESV to use the word preaching because it's the word for evangelism, which just means he was telling the story about Jesus. It wasn't like he was preaching in public he probably wasn't he was probably in the midst of the samaritan city telling people the good news about jesus 
Listen, what scares you about sharing the good news about Christ? For some of you, it's like, look, when I get promoted to my job in the company, then I'll have the ability to share Jesus. I'll have a greater clout in my company. Or whenever we finally get settled in our house, then I'll be able to share Jesus with my neighbors, but I've got too much stuff to do in my house. Or whenever I can finally get them to come to Trinity, then they're going to hear the gospel. That's not the way Scripture tells us to share the gospel. The principle that he gives us here is that every Christian evangelized and every Christian had the responsibility not of succumbing themselves to some program, not of some formal preaching circuit, just of being the church on the move. That's funny that I just said that. There's a church in this town called that. Being the church on the move for the sake of the gospel. They're spreading the gospel to each other through what they say. Can you share the gospel? If I asked you to share the gospel with someone, could you do it? Listen, it's kind of a threatening question because we feel really, we really feel insecure about that. There is, um, uh, there's a book by Robert Bella called Habits of the Heart, and he quotes a guy who grew up in the South, and he talks about a conversation with a young therapist friend of his, and they were looking back on their careers, and he said, one of the messages that I got growing up in the South as a doctor's son was to be very respectful to have a great deal of respect for others. And another message as a child was that you were independent. You took care of yourself. And the phrase that comes to mind, he says, is where is your backbone? When things are bad, you take care of yourself. You don't ask things of other people. So in one way, you were really connected to other people in terms of politeness, caring, and respect. And in another way, you were very independent and would seek to be independent. The point is that in Owasso, we, we lie. I like to be independent. And we like to not really ask for help from other people. And that actually shapes the way that we're afraid to share the gospel with other people. Number one, because we assume that because they go to church, they get the gospel. And that's a bad assumption. And number two, it's because, frankly, we're, we, really, we really want to remain fiercely independent. We want to be concerned about ourselves and not about other people. Listen, the essence of love, the essence of love is to be able to tell people the good news about anything. Good news about how you love them, you care for them, you want to provide for them as a husband or a wife. Good news for how thankful you are to your parents for what they've done for you and helping you understand the gospel and be able to have a house over your head where you could go to school and you can enjoy being brought up in America. Good love means you share the good news with each other. And it's the call of every person, not just the call of the laity. In this church, in this church, it's the session, it's the elders of our church who governs the church. It's the staff who manages the church. It's the pastor who leads the church. And it's the congregation who ministers. Does that make sense? You're going to go through the staff to minister to each other, but the more the world sees us being the church together, less hierarchical, more organic, the more beautiful a picture it is of the gospel for the world around us. Who shares the gospel? You do. Point number one. Point number two, where is the gospel spread? Notice what it says. It says that the gospel is spread wherever 
they went. Notice in chapter five, uh, verse five, it says, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria. This is probably the capital city of Samaria. He went into the city. And friends, there's a huge, huge movement right now in the world. And it's a wonderful movement of going to the global cities of the world to bring the gospel to the cities. And we have such a tremendous privilege because do you know where people move when they move to Tulsa? They're moving to Owasso into the suburbs right now. All the small Oklahoma towns are drying up and people are coming into Tulsa and Oklahoma City. They're coming to us. And even though Owasso, once a town of 15,000, now almost to 40, is growing so fast in part because the world, Oklahoma, is coming to us. And we have the privilege, just like Philip had, of not just going to the city, we're in it. We are in the city. But I want you to be careful. I want you to be careful to think that the city is not the only place where the gospel is shared. Because as I said, the gospel is shared wherever they went. Notice what it also says in verse uh, 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Okay, it's great to go to the city. But the angel told Philip to go to the desert. Listen, the desert and the city both need the gospel. And then later in verse 40, and back in verse 25, actually, one verse up from 26, it says, Now when they had testified the spoken word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And then in verse 40, after uh, Philip goes to Azotus, he goes up to Lydda and then to Caesarea, up north of the Mediterranean Sea, and Philip went to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Here's the point. The gospel is to be preached and to be shared Everywhere you go. Some of you find yourself in downtown Tulsa and you're kind of in the center of the bustle and hustle of the city. That's a place to share the gospel. Some of you go out and work in Catoosa and you're in a place that there's not as many people there. But you know what? You know friends there. That's the place to share the gospel. Some of you work so far out in the oil fields that you actually are fairly isolated with the crew that's out there as you work on the derricks. Listen, that's the place to share the gospel. The implications of Acts chapter 8 is that the gospel goes wide to the world, that every Christian should preach the gospel everywhere they go. So there's no elitism about the city over the desert place. There's no elitism about being in the desert place over the city. They're both to be places where the gospel is preached. And what's amazing about this is that you see uh, Philip being willing to go to all these places. And every Christian evangelized wherever they went. And what is the result? What happens? Well, there are conversions. Who to whom is the gospel to be shared? Not just who shares it or where it's shared, but to whom is it to be shared? And notice in the text that Philip goes to Samaria. Listen, in the 10th century BC, the kingdom split after Solomon. 
And Jeroboam and Rehoboam led the division. And 10 tribes go to Israel and two tribes go to Judah. And in 722, the Assyrians come and they wipe out the 10 tribes of Israel. And they clear all the Jews out except for a few that remained. And they populated Samaria, the capital of Israel, with foreigners. And these foreigners married the remaining Jews that were there. And so they created this mongrel race of foreigners and, form- and Jews. And they called them Samaritans. And the Jews looked down these people. They considered them worse than dogs. And the Samaritans began to develop their, old, their own Old Testament. They accepted the Pentateuch, but they rejected everything else. They built their own temple in Mount Gerizim. And they fiercely connected their lives to the religious temple that was found in Mount Gerizim. And so for a thousand years, you had the Samaritans and the Jews, and they hated each other. It's kind of like the Russians and the Ukrainians today. It's the best example I can think of. Deep, deep systemic hatred for hundreds, even thousands of years. And so here Philip goes to the Samaritans. What does this tell us? It tells us Philip's whole new way of thinking about the world had changed. Because Philip goes to Samaria. Listen, who are you uncomfortable around? The crackheads, the skaters, the potheads, the smokers, the guys who dress different than you, the homeschoolers, the public schoolers, the Democrats, the Republicans. Give me a break. Who is it that you really despise? It's probably people just like you, actually. The gospel is to be shared across racial boundaries. And listen, this is so important in Owasso. Because you look around at the churches, and they look pretty similar. But I long for Danny and Jennifer, who owns Danny Donuts down the street, a Korean couple who came from Seattle, to come to Trinity and find rest in the gospel of grace. I long for my friend Kofi, who joined the Y a couple of months ago. He's from Ghana. He just moved here. He doesn't go to church. He doesn't even know about the gospel. He doesn't really care. But I pray for Kofi, and I pray that he will find greater welcome at at Trinity Presbyterian Church than he does at the YMCA of Owasso. Why? Because this is the place where the people of God are to be the body of Christ together. Across racial lines, the gospel is to be spread. And Philip is totally changed by this. It doesn't happen automatically. Remember, God uses the laity, remember? And notice that when he uses the laity, notice how he does it. Philip doesn't just come to Samaria and start preaching the gospel. Sinner, you're going to go to hell. Come believe in Jesus. That's not how he does it. It says he starts out with deeds of mercy. And he performs signs and miracles and wonders. Listen, when's the last time? When's the last time I, I'll talk to myself for a second, Blake. When's the last time I actually gave up a Saturday afternoon to go help my neighbor down the street? to just love them and encourage them and help them out. When's the last time that I thought, was it very long ago, I don't want to do this. I just want to sit and watch the Spurs Thunder game. Maybe it was last night. Listen, all of us are called to do deeds of mercy together. And one of the ways our church is going to grow is if non-Christians see our church and they're actually, they actually get a little confused at first because they think, wait a minute, like you believe in Jesus and you're conservative in your theology, but you sure care for the poor like those mainline people do. 
I want us to be a church that does social justice organically and understands the gospel and shares it organically, both at the same time. And you have to be intentional about doing that. Dionysius of Alexandria said in the third century that most of our Christian brothers showed unbounded love in the midst of a deep, deep plague in the city of Alexandria. They showed unbounding love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. Many in nursing and caring and transferred their death to themselves and died in their place. The best of our brothers and sisters lost their lives in this way. A number of presbyters and deacons and laymen willingly laid down their lives, and so with high commendation they entered death. And the result was a great piety and a strong faith which seemed in every way in them equal to that of martyrdom as they died caring for the needs of others. Listen, the early church spread because they cared for the needs of other people. And here Philip is doing deeds of, and signs of mercy ministry. Don't get caught up on what kind of signs or miracles he was doing. He's doing mercy ministry. As a church, that's what we ought to be called to do together. Do we make room for mercy ministry in our own schedules? My friend and fellow pastor, Kevin DeYoung, wrote a book called Crazy Busy that's extremely helpful. I commend it to you. And he says that we have to schedule time to be unscheduled in order to be useful for the kingdom. Listen, busyness does not mean you're being fruitful or faithful to Jesus. And busyness does not mean at the same time that you're not being fruitful or faithful to Jesus. It just means you're busy. And everybody's busy. But you've got to be able to push back your schedule enough to let there be room for other people in your life and to be able to release your idol of control like I have and to allow people to interrupt your schedule. Because the most beautiful thing in creation is not the task that you're about to check off. It's that person sitting in front of you. Do you love them? Are you able to be there for them? Are you open to help meet their needs? You've got to be able to make time. If you're like me, then prolonged periods of time away from the internet is the most helpful thing in the world. Hiking in Colorado is what I need. I need to be worried about brown bears, not the number of bars on my phone. And probably so do you. Guys, let's make room in our schedule if we can. Listen to me. Make room in our schedule for meeting the needs of other people. It's so simple. But it's not that simple, is it? Who shares the gospel, the laity? Where is it shared? It's shared everywhere. To whom is it shared? It's shared across racial lines. Secondly, it's shared across spiritual lines. Here, Philip goes to Simon the magician in verse 9. Simon believed but was baptized, but Peter later rebukes him in verse 21. Simon has an intellectual faith that's disconnected from a real heart change. And there's a subtle warning for all of us here. Because Simon gets the gospel intellectually, but he wants the approval of other people. And so he says, yeah, I'll sign on. I'll help with setup. I'll become part of the church. But there's no real heart change in him. And Simon himself busies himself to win the approval of other people. 
because he's a man, it says, that all the people paid attention to him. It says it twice in the chapter. He loved the attention. He was a magician. They called him great. And finally, after Peter preaches the gospel and Simon is baptized, Peter calls him out for his intellectual understanding, but not real heart change because Simon was just using Jesus to get what he wanted. Some of you really love the approval of other people. I love the approval of other people. Most pastors do. And yet sometimes we use the good news of the gospel in order to feed our own idolatries of approval of others. And so we really don't let the gospel change us. We kind of use the church and we use the subculture that we find ourselves in to position ourselves to get the same thing we would want even if we were a Muslim or not even Christian at all. Some of us use power. That's what Simon was really after in this case study. He was after power. He used magic to manipulate people and draw them to him. And some of you, in the same way, use money as your power. Some of you use your network as your power. Listen, the gospel comes to help you see that you actually don't have power, that Jesus is the one who provides the power that you need because your power is powerless to do the most important thing in your life, and that is to reconcile you with God. All of us are divorcees. You ever thought about it that way? And it's only the power of the gospel that brings us back into reconciliation with our groom as his bride. And he does it together. So the gospel is to be shared across racial lines to the Samaritans. It's to be shared across spiritual lines, even to Simon the magician. And lastly, it's to be shared across cultural lines. Philip shares the gospel, lastly, with this Ethiopian eunuch. A eunuch was a person who had a procedure done as a boy that would not allow him to have children. And any boy who was in the administration of the king, or the queen in this case, Queen Candace, was made a eunuch so that there would be no distraction from his duty as an administrator in the cabinet. And so this eunuch comes to the temple, and he perhaps he's seeking to believe, perhaps he does believe, but he gets to the temple, and he goes back home, and he probably had a really rude awakening at the temple. You know why? Because the temple will take a lot of people. If you're Jewish and if you're male, you'll get in. But if you're a eunuch, there is no room for you in the temple. And Deuteronomy 23.1 says that eunuchs shall not be part of the kingdom of God. And so here's this eunuch going back, back home. And Ethiopia wasn't like modern-day Africa. It was the northern part of Egypt. And here this Ethiopian is going back home, and he's probably puzzled. Because he just made this huge trek to Jerusalem to go and enjoy the temple and worship God. But he was stonewalled at the gates because he was a eunuch and wouldn't be let in. And so where does he go? He reads Isaiah because he knows that in Isaiah, in Isaiah in chapter 56, verse 7 and 8, is the passage where it says, One day, do you know who will be accepted into the kingdom of God? The eunuchs. And he's reading toward that passage, and he's in Isaiah 53, and he's reading, and he's confused. And the angel calls Philip to go and see him, and he goes, hey, do you know what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, I need a guide. I don't really understand it. I just had this experience at the temple where I was rejected. What gives? And so Philip explains to him the gospel, and beginning with that passage in Isaiah 53, this beautiful passage about Jesus. 
he explains how even the eunuchs, the most hopeless among us, are able to have hope because Jesus Christ is our hope. Listen, there were a lot of messiahs that were promised in the ancient Near East. Judas in Acts chapter 5 rose up and 400 people followed him, Gamaliel tells us. And after him, Judas of Galilee comes up. Remember in Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel tells the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, and he too dies. People thought that Moses was the great prophet. Let's follow Moses. Those people were called the Pharisees. And they thought that Moses was the prophet of God. But here, here this prophet comes, born of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, who accomplishes for Israel what they never expected, that he would die the death they should have died so that they might have life. And Philip is explaining this to them. He's saying, oh, my friend, listen, all the scripture tells us about Jesus. And you too, even as a unit, can have life. What's amazing about the gospel is that as soon as it leaves Jerusalem, what happens? There's the clash of culture. Here's a Jewish man sharing the gospel with a black man. That's how the gospel spreads. Here's a Jewish man sharing the gospel with a Samaritan. That's how the gospel spreads. Here's a Jewish man spreading the gospel with a magician. That's how the gospel spreads. God uses you to spread the gospel. Are you willing to tell your story? Do you have eyes to see opportunities to tell it? Where does he call you to share it? Everywhere. In the heart of the biggest metropolis in the world and in the desert places and all the villages in between. And what happens? Conversions happen when you share the gospel. Now notice, I didn't say that you'll see the conversions happen. The conversions will happen. Hudson Taylor in 1854 went to China and for 51 years he labored among the Chinese in order to share the gospel. He saw some fruit. Some. But what do you think about, what do you think he thought when in 1949, after he had passed away, when communism came in and took over the national government and they kicked out 286 China inland missionaries from the country, what would happen to the gospel? Hundreds of years of evangelical work in China from one decision, totally gone. No more missionaries, no more proclamation of the gospel in China. And it was that decision by the communist government that scattered of those 286 missionaries. They went into Japan and they went into Southeast Asia and they ironically rose up even better missionaries for China than they, them European selves, could have. And so then the Vietnamese and the Japanese and the Koreans begin to go into China. And pretty soon, the underground church in China had grown 30 or 40 times what it had been in 1949 whenever the communist government tried to stamp it out. That's what happens whenever you blow on the embers. It's persecution that drives us into obedience. And friends, listen, don't let that be the thing that has to drive you because the Lord may bring that upon you, but I pray he doesn't. And I pray, friends, that we're able to be the church now that's able to spread the gospel as God calls us. Jonathan Edwards, many, many years ago, wrote this, what is it that you could desire in a Savior that is not in Christ? 
What is there that is great or good? What is there that is venerable or winning? What is there that is adorable or endearing? Or what can you think of that which would be encouraging, which is not to be found in the person of Jesus? Would you have your Savior be great and honorable because you are willing to be beholden to a low person? Is not Christ honorable enough to be worthy that you should be dependent upon him? Is he not high enough in order to be appointed your Savior? Would you not only have a Savior of high degree, but would you have him even to be made lowly, even beyond, marred beyond human appearance? Has Christ not been made low, low enough for you? Has he not suffered enough for you? What is lacking, or what would you add if you could to make Christ be more fit to be your Savior? As we come to the table in just a minute, listen. Your Savior knows your fears about evangelism. He knows my own fears about evangelism. And he wants to drive us beyond our idols into repentance and joy to connect us across racial and spiritual, even cultural lines because it is the congregation of Christ's church who ministers, not the professionalization of the clergy. The clergy and the congregation work together to do that. So friends, let's settle our hearts as we come to the table and let's allow the Lord to minister to us as he reminds you that his righteousness is enough for us. And your approval, your seeking of power, all of that finds its true rest at the feet of Jesus. In order to be used for evangelism, to be used for ministry, you have to first to be able to be ministered to. Are you? Repentance is the sign, if that's true in your life. Let's pray together. Father, would you take us now as we come to the table, and would you remind us that all of us are hopeless apart from you? And would you give us such a love for other people, no matter how different that they are, to see that we are as hopeless as they are, and would you move us by your grace to share the good news with them? Would you amaze us in telling of the good news? Would you amaze us by their faith in the gospel? And would you help us to bring them into the kingdom? Father, evangelism is scary. And I admit that we as a church, we as a denomination, I as a person, we're not always that good at it. But that's what you call us to do in Acts chapter 8. So we hide behind the promises of your word and we repent of our lethargy and we walk forth again in new obedience and faith that you are enough for us. Oh, give us a love for the world that draws us to the nations, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.